0: Welcome to the Modern Futures Podcast. Humanity is evolving at a pace never seen before. Join futurist Nicholas Badman as he discusses how new ideas and developments impact us today, how they will make tomorrow more productive, and how they can make life a little more challenging.
1: This week on the Modern Futures podcast, I'm sitting down with Denise Brennan, who owns and manages a co-working studio for primarily creative professionals in the very hip rail town in Vancouver. Hi, Denise. How are you?
0: Hi, Nick. I'm well. Yourself?
1: Great. We're going to get into a whole bunch of different things, everything from the, the history of work to the future of work, to social network working and open source communities, and then into co-working and where we feel that that's going.
0: Uh, My name is Denise Brennan. Most people call me Dee. About a year ago, I started a co-working studio in Vancouver um, as kind of a practical application of more than a decade of community building, uh, working on a foundation, educational foundation of actual social networking, I would say, that I got just before Facebook was born. Right. That's uh, my my interest was in creating and evolving strong collaborative communities, and so that's what I focused my attention on.
1: Great, and uh, and you've been building this business. There's lots of very cool people that work here. I work here, um, so I mean that's just that's just a happenstance. But I, I'd love it. We had a conversation a few weeks ago uh, around some subject matter around work, and you've got this depth of history uh, of understanding, like how the modern world of work became the modern world of work. So I'd love for you to just take us through a little bit of a history lesson there as well.
0: Sure, and I'm just realizing at this moment that uh, coincidentally, or I guess complementarily, I ended up in Vancouver because I met the uh, creator of the Workless Less Party, okay. who got me to manage a campaign for provincial election in 2005. So I actually came back to Vancouver after finishing my master's to start to work on this electoral campaign that was about uh, promoting the four-day work week as a way to kind of apply politics practi- practically in daily life and create a kind of a red-green movement of labor and environmental policy that would uh, impact the working world as we spend so much of our lives working. So that's kind of an interesting element as well that I could get into a little more later. But um, so as partly as a as a as a result of that experience and partly as part of my thesis study I have done a lot of thinking around how people organize themselves and one of the major ways we organize ourselves is around our work life so historically speaking the uh, the modern day approach to work is not really that old at at its oldest there's a a theorist named Max Weber who wrote a work called the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of the information age that postulates that uh, mostly Calvin but Calvinists in general put forward the idea that working was a way to be uh, graceful, so a way to be in service to God. So previous to that time, the kind of more predominant approach to work was the Catholic idea that you should spend most of your time in leisurely contemplation of God, and that was the way that you proved your sanctity and your, your devotion to your religion. And then the Calvinists came along and it was kind of a necessary shift in approach to work because that was around the same time as the Industrial Revolution. So basically, religion, uh, the capitalism needed religion to get behind the idea that working was more godly than not working in order to make a shift that would create a workforce that was able to sustain the Industrial Revolution.
1: So it's moving from the agrarian sort of working off of the land into the factories, right? And, and what year, what sort of year was this, uh, Denise?
0: Um, so the Calvinist thing happened around the fifteen hundreds. Okay. Um, in the seventeen mid seventeen hundreds, the shift from everyone working at home. So essentially, before seventeen fifty, everyone worked at home, quote unquote. There, there was no such thing as an office uh, necessarily. So that basically moved things more towards factory work. But yeah, so the Industrial Revolution brought um, brought a lot of things about... Um, it was factory work, it was scheduling. Your your work had to be scheduled because you were a cog in a wheel. So someone had to replace you at a certain point in time so that the widget thing could be attached to the other widget thing so that production could move along. So basically our commitment to that idea of a scheduled workday started there. And although... In a lot of ways it's an arcane notion and no one needs to replace us functionally or physically in our daily lives today, we still adhere to that idea that there has to be a schedule and there has to be a time that someone gets there so that we can be the cog in the wheel, which is quite an outdated notion. So as of the 1800s, capitalism really started getting a foothold um, and that Protestant work ethic meant, meant a whole lot more. So, there was kind of a bit of a standoff between the the Protestant work ethic and the German Romanticism movement, which uh, was more on the direction of celebrating artists and individuality and moving forward this creative pursuit. And of course, uh, capitalism beat out <laughs> artisanism, if you will, and so the the Protestant work ethic really moved that kind of capitalist perspective on work forward. And then as of the mid-1800s, the telecom industry, the telegraph, really pushed us forward in in industrialization, and and we were kind of committed to that as the primary focus as of that time. So towards the end of the 1800s, the typical workday was between 10 and 12 hours, six days a week, so it really ramped up. So people were working all of the time and taking one day off, also contextualized in the importance of religion at that time, the one day off being... Sunday, because Sunday was the day you went to church and were pious and reflected on that, leaving absolutely no leisure time. So Sunday was the day that you were committed to your godliness, and six days a week were when you were committed to your work life. So there was absolutely no time for leisure. Around about the 1920s, two different groups started to mobilize and and aggregate in the idea of getting some more labor rights going, because essentially... Your boss owned your life, your work owned your life, um, with a small ownership going to whatever religion you happen to belong to. Um, So those two groups were the labor unions, which had started to make some noise about uh, more regulation, healthier conditions, various uh, ways to make the working life better for the individual worker. And the Jewish community, who were very keen to have Saturdays off instead of Sundays, which makes a whole lot of sense. So both of these groups kind of started to work towards a five-day work week, or a, a, a kind of a more structured, more structured approach um, as opposed to the free-for-all of just working like a dog whenever you could. Right. Um, interesting... and, and the
1: industrial age was trying to... it's the meat grinder. Trying to get more widgets out of the out of the door to, to make the person who owned the factory even more wealthy and to you know drive progress forward, right? Absolutely. And then this is like the humans fighting back a little bit in, in using religion as the backbone of their discussion.
0: Yes, absolutely. Which
1: is defensible in those in those days, certainly.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, there's it's interesting. So the the next part of this timeline actually has a whole bunch of things attached to it um, that have other examples of of creating needs or creating wants and the and the impact of consumerism in general. So interestingly, the person who was most effective at creating the five day work week actually was known to be anti Semitic and really didn't care too much about the rights of workers, but it was most interested in people having leisure time with which to spend money on products. So it was actually Henry Ford that pushed forward the five day work week as a way to in fact get to a certain extent, get more productivity out of his workers because people who work 10 to 12 days, six days a week, aren't very functional by the end of the sixth day. Um, But also as a way to give people some freedom and time in order to be able to buy the products that he was making at the time. So this is a uh, there's some really interesting reflections, particularly if uh, if you look uh, at some of the work of the Workless Party. So Conrad Schmidt of the Workless Party wrote a book um, called "Workers of the World, Relax." And one of the things that he pointed to in it was um, was how. South Africa was taken over, essentially, um, by the enforcement of a hut tax. So initially, when the Dutch arrived in South Africa, they essentially said, We're here, you can work for us, we will give you money, you can buy things with it. And as an oversimplification, but South Africans said, Why would we buy things? We have no interest in consumerism. There's no particular reason for us to want to have money. And so then there was a cut tax imposed, so something they had to spend money on, and that was a way to to push them into forced labor, essentially. They couldn't get them to work for money. So in this certain way, one of the constructs of our modern working like a dog for money is also an outcrop of consumerism. So it's a self-feeding machine. If you work like a dog, then you get money to buy the things that other people made working like a dog. So we don't really take much time to stop and think about whether we want to engage in that or whether or not that's an interesting thing to us on a fundamental level, we just do it because we're part of the of that system. Of course we work to get money to buy the things that we make.
1: It seems very backwards but it's so ingrained into our culture now that consumerism has sort of taken over every single part of, of the world and western economies are based on how healthy retail is, which I think is a terrible way to measure the health of a, com- a country. I actually do think Things are going to get bad within a few years when people earn less money, work less, ultimately. And uh, we're going to have to have a major redress and a rebalance. But we'll come come back to that a little bit later.
0: Well, essentially, if you it doesn't necessarily mean that you make less money if you work less. If we can break out of this idea that you must work nine to five. I mean, working nine to five, Monday to Friday, has really only existed for mm. a little over 100 years. So... Our idea of that, it's it's so ingrained and so entrenched. And originally, it was necessary to be a merchant in with suppliers in a specific area. So, like, if we were in Vancouver and we were, uh, I don't know, a, a shoemaker that needed to connect with a supplier, then it had to be between certain hours, but now we're... We do business internationally, so we have absolutely no reason to be stuck with a 9-to-5 work day other than habit. And that's what we think should exist because that's our most recent experience.
1: I worked a job last year. I was working on four different time zones, and uh, 9-to-5 didn't exist. It was more like 16 hours a day kind of existed, like six days a week. But 16 hours, not necessarily full time know dipping in and out as and when required and then being full-time in a particular time zone which was in North America so
0: yeah for sure and I mean what's what's the most exciting part of this period of time for me is that in fact work can look whatever you way you want it to you know it's going to take a long time for people to migrate away from the reliable understandable structure of nine to five and Mm. not everyone is going to want to so it's it's more about um being able to choose what your work looks like than it is about a dogmatic new approach to work where nobody works nine to five. So the really exciting thing about this point in time is that is that way to like, you know, maybe you're the kind of person who wants to work 16 hour days, eight days in a row, and then take three months off and travel. Or maybe you're the kind of person who wants to work five hours a day, 365 days of the year. So we're, we're shifting to a comprehension of How people can work that allows you to kind of find your own rhythm and be the most productive because you're happy because you're making your own decisions on how to work so yeah so now as in the last few years as we know things have been moving more towards uh, non-traditional full-time employment or non-traditional employment in general so companies have downsized quite frequently and have started hiring consultants or freelancers lots of people are going out on their own um, as freelancers, uh, which is exciting, but also poses quite a few issues, because those people have a lot in common, being that they're traditionally not, em- they're not traditionally employed, but other than that, they don't have the ability to, ha- to have very much contact with each other. So when I was going to school in Europe around 2001, there was uh, an essay written by a couple of women named Anne and Marine Rambach, called Les Antes precarious intellectuals was their kind of idea about these people, a lot of them emerging from post-secondary education, going into independent careers and having no support structure, nobody to ask questions of. So like as the, as students leave university and go off on into their own world, um, and very similarly as people leave traditional employment and go out on their own, um, a lot of people don't know who to ask questions to we're reinventing the wheel on a regular basis like even when I started this business um, I spent months learning things that I'm sure all kinds of other people were learning at the same time of me and even people in my own network that we could easily pool our resources if we could find a way to connect with each other so when I was doing the market research for um, the co-working studio I discovered how hard it is to even count those people like hey, there's how do you how do you count an invisible layer of your employment force where the all like no one is registered as not traditionally employed so there's small business less than one employee there's um you know part-time laborers there's a whole bunch of categorizations but there isn't really a non-traditionally employed like how do you even monitor that kind of thing and it's something really traditional organizations like in insurance companies and market research firms are gonna be a long time, in my opinion, to figure out how to categorize that because it's so outside of their understanding of how to count and quantify something. So when you consider that, it's it's very clear how difficult it would be to mobilize that group of people to make sure that their rights are protected, to make sure they have the availability to knowledge, and to even share stories and you know work together to move that uh, group of people forward.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, in, in the States you've, you've got something, that the Freelancers Union, you know, because there's such a huge contingent workforce and it's getting bigger and bigger by the year. I think people are realizing that they've got a choice you know, maybe to drop into a job for two years and then be independent for two years or, or just to live this very interesting life, where, which is slightly nomadic and, and you're, you're flitting from here to there between friends and uh, between cities and even countries to, to work in different ways, right? But if you're not living in one place, you know, how do you get taxed? Um, where are you? If someone pays you in Bitcoin, are you just completely invisible? Because I know some people that, that try and operate that way as well.
0: Yeah, it's it's an interesting period of time for all different kinds of organizing yourselves as humans. So we're seeing a lot of urban density created. Mm. In Canada, we're pretty used to having a lot of space. That's changing like crazy. So uh, in Europe was much quicker to embrace co-working because the idea of sharing space in dense centers is a lot older. So they've been sharing space forever. I went on a tour of uh, co-working spaces in Europe when I was doing the research for my own space and it, even people who weren't working in official co-working spaces were working in shared spaces, working in shared offices. So this idea of, of organizing our communities based on um, the spaces that we share is a really strong one, both residentially and commercially. So for example, in, in Vancouver, we're seeing the rise of the condo, uh, which everyone is talking about, of course, and we're all miserable that we won't have our own little siloed house of our own. Right now, the way that that neighborhoods are organized in Vancouver specifically is that your neighbors are your neighbors because they make roughly the same amount of money that you do. That's essentially the only thing you have in common. So you can afford to live in a neighborhood and other people around you may coincidentally be in a similar cultural demographic because that demographic also makes about the same amount of money. But there's no real stickiness. There's no real cultural evolution part to it. So I think that over time, people will start organizing themselves around amenities. So I'm really hoping that condo developments create neighborhoods and communities actually again. So each kind of area will have a grocery store and a pharmacist and a hairdresser, and we'll live in these towers that we choose based on the amenities available in the building. So for example, I had a conversation with one of our members uh, several months ago about this new condo thing and how ridiculous it is to assume that we'll be able to live in a very small space. I personally live in 260 square feet. And his comment to me was, well, you don't do winter sports. So like where would people who do winter sports store their skis, store their snowboards, store their gear? And I said, well, if your thing is outdoor winter sports, then you would choose a condo development that has a room in it that's about storing your winter equipment and then you'd live in a building with a bunch of people who enjoy winter sports and then you would have people potentially to go skiing with so at least you have a starting point for a conversation so if you're a woodworker you'd find a building which there are a couple in town um that have a shared woodworking studio studio in it if you're a workout enthusiast there's a lot a lot of options for a building that you work out in so instead of it being like a subsequent thing that you happen to get a fitness studio in your condo building i think we're gonna get more and more specific on our amenities and it's going to be more of a focus that if you are a crossfit person you will choose a building that has a crossfit studio in it Um, and i think that model gets gets stronger and stronger based on the idea of what you could have stored outside of your apartment in order to be a small living person um similarly with the co-working movement i think it's not just about finding a desk outside of your home to work at it's about finding a space that has amenities that are relevant to your professional development or your personal development so maybe in our case i really try and make the amenities appropriate to people who are developing artistic and creative production and lots of people are interested in accessing that and want to add more creativity to their personal business or to their lives. So those amenities help them as well.
1: If you see a city of the future with this model, suddenly you go to the area where, where the bakers and chefs and people that work in the, the food service industry live. It's a really good time and you get really well fed and it's got great restaurants. You've got the workout area, you know, but that's still got, you know, sort of all the health food shops and, and those, those bits and pieces and lots of... Uh, you know, fitness, fitness apparel companies may be there as well. Um, and then you've got the tech people that are all together, which is great for, for mindshare. But I'm going to challenge that a little bit. that If suddenly you you, you split by this these experiences that we love uh, and we've got a deep investment in, are we just making it harder for people to get into a broader range of interests? Or, or what's going to happen in cities in that case? You know, people that are... That are, that are able to do multiple different things. Are they are they going to feel lost? Or are they going to feel sort of isolated in these buildings? Or, you know, when you actually look for a particular kind of building, you, you've got such a stringent set of rules to say, I must live with people that snowboard and are graphic designers, that, that it gets almost impossible to find somewhere to live.
0: Uh, well, if we were smart, uh, and I'm not even remotely suggesting that we are As urban planners, we would diversify the condos within a neighborhood. So you don't have, like, the West End becomes where all of the bakers live. You have one building with a commercial shared kitchen in each ten blocks of the city so that you're living next door to people who have a different interest than you. And then you have access to all of those things. So that's what I mean about kind of reinvesting in the neighborhood idea. So not, like... Right now, we are quite siloed, I think, in, in a lot of ways if from a, uh industrial perspective, you know. So so really creating the opportunity for, the, you know... Right now, for example, there's an area that I affectionately call Loftland, which is uh, actually literally Brewery Creek. Like, the name for that area is Brewery Creek. Um, it's just up above 2nd uh, and Main and to the east. And that's a whole bunch of lofts. And so many years ago, when I was looking for... Um, at a loft apartment, of course, with my boyfriend at the time, who was... We were in our late 20s, early 30s, and we kept going to see lofts in that area, and we kept encountering ourselves. So it was basically 10 couples that looked more or less like us looking at a loft, and the competition was ridiculous, because how are you going to choose? Like, obviously, you're going to pick the doctor and the lawyer in their 30s that look just like the, you know, the woodworker and the graphic designer in their... So it was really, like, classist and socialist, and it had this very bizarre element to it. But if you had a loft-land building in each neighborhood, then it would be more about what area you wanted to live in, and, you know, it's not like... I, I find Vancouver, and maybe it's wrong to call Vancouver out on it specifically, but I find Vancouver likes to clump like things together. You know, if you are this, then you go here and be this. And there's very much a cultural delivery system to a certain extent. So, like, um, you know, you walk into a, a an apartment or, a, or a, even a co-working space or a cafe, and it's basically like, if you are this kind of person, then you should purchase the things from here to prove that you are part of this cultural movement, as opposed to a real... Promotion of the idea that we're moving culture forward together. So like if you are interested in this kind of culture or you're interested in this kind of thing Come along and add your voice and we'll evolve this sort of thing together Of course structurally you have to provide some set of parameters for that And I definitely don't let anyone come in and change the full direction of our co-working studio, but I do encourage people to help move it forward and and to think more profoundly about what culture is and whether they really just want to be a culture consumer or they want to be a culture creator and that kind of goes back to the whole problem between the working and the consumption model of things, you know, you're a worker bee so you can consume the things that someone else makes so what if you scaled back your worker bee-ness and then became a producer instead of a consumer and really kind of played with that so there, there are two other things that I kind of wanted to add to the conversation one of them is a is a reconceptualization of the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of the of the industrial age, which was a book by Pekka Himinen, um written in the early two thousands called the Hacker Ethic and the Spirit of the Information Age, and essentially it, it talks about how the hacker ethic is about working when you want to work and not working when you don't want to work and maybe not always working for money maybe we working for other reasons than money um, and really kind of turning that idea of working to buy things on its head and um, using reputation as a currency and kind of that updated idea and we have that luxury in the information age because like I said you don't have to replace yourself on the line you can work when you want and that's really an opportunity that we have because of technology. It's kind of an interesting way to to adjust that idea of of what work means or what work can look like. Um, and there's another book called From the Cathedral to the Bazaar that is really interesting as well. That kind of ties in with that. So in former times and even up to arguably Vatican II, it's funny that religion is so tied into work in a lot of ways. But um, I mean, it's it's also about people organizing themselves, which is like at the root of this conversation as we're. As as I talk, I'm realizing how people organize themselves. So pre-Vatican II particularly, there was a perception of knowledge as being held by men in white robes in sequestered spaces. So the idea was that the type of knowledge that was going to be shared was chosen very specifically, and that the masses would not only not be interested in learning it, but wouldn't be ready to learn it, would have no utility in learning it, and then post Vatican do particularly, I mean, it's as a slow progression over the last 100 to 200 years, we've moved towards a conception of knowledge being important to be shared freely, as opposed to held by men in white robes in sequestered places, to move us forward. Like sh- that sharing of knowledge is a really important part. And, and the cathedral to the bazaar is that idea of moving knowledge and power and even wealth from being held by a select few factory owners etc and being dispersed to the masses the masses being able to have access to anything they want and to really break out of that system that systematic idea of hierarchy
1: is it more of a socialist ethic or does it go as far as as communism
0: uh the the idea of the cathedral to the bazaar yeah no 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 that... the,
1: the the idea that we we're going to make everything accessible to everyone and you know everything's going to be infinitely you know affordable
0: uh no it's not about infinite affordability at all it's okay. not a financial it's okay. not a financial approach it's a it's a knowledge approach so um it's kind of the idea it uh, joseph stiglitz wrote about knowledge as a common public good as a global public good sure so um, much like libraries or public parks so knowledge as a global public good should not be controlled because the access to it does not deplete the access of another person to it for example so your enjoyment of a public park doesn't preclude me from enjoying a public park in the same way knowledge is a global public good your enjoyment of knowledge does not prevent me from enjoying knowledge so
1: But it can make your life more difficult than if, if, for example, you know, you read a particular book, it's quite politically charged. I read the same book and it's politically charged. And then we have uh, diametrically opposite opinions. And then we have to work together. And at certain points in time, we actually have to have a vigorous debate about the right way forward on certain decisions
0: oh my God, how will we survive it?
1: <laughs> no, but it's inter- it's interesting, right? And th- this is what people were scared with when knowledge became a lot more widespread, is that it became more difficult to, for the, the common man uh, and common woman to just lie down and, and be told what to do. And this is the power that we live in today. It's like now people almost know too much and, <laughs> and, and, and then can make lots of informed decisions. And managers have a harder time at work. And politicians have a harder time, we hope, in, in their, in their ridings and in, in provincial and federal parliament as well. So I, I just find it interesting like that, that we talk about that that open knowledge economy. But I'd like to bring that back as well, that I actually think that that does lead to, to the monetary situation as well, because people that are better read went to better educational institutions. Maybe it's because I went to, into the UK. I've got more opportunity as well, right?
0: Um, I would say that's arguably because you're more educated, not because you have more earning potential. Okay. But you're, you're saying essentially what will we do post massive opiate. Yes. That's
1: That's exactly what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, perhaps we will shift to a, a structure that isn't so dependent on consumerism. Like maybe our earning potential isn't what we're talking about. You know, the, the, there's been a lot of discussion recently about the guaranteed minimum wage or guaranteed um guaranteed
1: minimum income
0: yeah minimum income. that's not called that there's another name for it but anyways but um they've actually seen that people who have a guaranteed wage pull themselves out of distress spend more money encouraging the economy don't take as much from social services i mean they might not get rich but that's not the point like the objective isn't vast wealth the objective is generally speaking some kind of comfort and happiness so that earning potential thing as a result of education is is it's a bit skewed i think one of the things that i don't know much about but that will happen is there will be a shift in our approach to economics as well right um i mean we in fact if we would like to not destroy the planet over the next couple of decades we really need to introduce true cost economics in regards to shipping and the environmental impact of how we price our goods and yeah. you know where where I'm from uh, there's a, a town not too far away that grows tomatoes that's their main thing is growing tomatoes they send almost all of their tomatoes somewhere else and then we import a bunch of tomatoes from Mexico because it's all about where you can get the most money for your tomatoes and I mean farmers have such a Pardon the pun. Tough road to hoe in general on making any kind of money. And it's like near urban ar- agriculture is dying rapidly. Um, but, you know, the, it, that's not a solution because we're creating such a massive environment environmental impact that doesn't get equated in the bottom line that in, eventually is likely to kill us all just to be right. really happy about that part.
1: So some of these things that like i push you forward, like minimum income was something that was experimented with 40 years ago in, in Dauphin. I probably said that wrong. Dauphin, Manitoba, right? And, uh, and exactly like you said, people were happier, people actually worked harder and were more productive as well. But it actually brought people out of poverty and gave people a baseline. And they're actually looking at this minimum income as being something like in Finland, Sweden, Wherever, and they're even looking at uh, implementing a, a certain trial in Ontario as well, I think, with the new government in Canada. I'm um, to, to look at this, right?
0: The most interesting thing is that they're healthier, which for a country that has a socialist mandate to provide healthcare for your people, like it's really worth taking a look at because healthier people are happier people, but they're also less expensive people.
1: Like fewer people in hospitals, fewer people need to see doctors as well. It's a very complex situation. So within this, this, this environment and this world of, of switching from the nine to five and an expectation of, of a certain level of salary, a certain job title, to this new world of creativity, free time to do the activities that we want to do. And it could be travel, it could be creative arts, it could be community building. We're going to end up in a better world. And this is, this is the whole point. With co-working spaces as hubs... And with buildings, based around like-minded people that talk to each other as well. And this sort of, uh, this sort of comes to a discussion around, what's the future? What, what do the next five to ten years look like? How, how do we get to this better future than we're living in today? Which is, we're sort of defined by, certainly in North America, we're defined by what we own and, and a certain status symbol. How do we get to somewhere like, the, the, I always look at the French, and I think the French are, have got it right. They live life and they love life. You look at Paris, it's, it's urban density is incredible, but within 15 minutes walk of any single part of Paris, you can find all of the amenities that you need. Fire service, hospitals, bars, supermarkets, DIY stores, or whatever. And that's the way that Paris and the arrondissement uh, <laughs> has been designed, right? how do we bring north america and cities like vancouver forward do we have to get to the point that urban density is so tough that we have to make those decisions to to build the things or or do we proactively think about community planning and and sort of stopping developers today and just thinking an intervention by the people probably supported by municipal government and provincial government to actually stop stop progress which is like more buildings more people we don't care who buys them to no, here's, here's some land. We need to carefully consider what this is going to do to the community and to Vancouver. And do we, do we stop people, have that debate, and then get it voted on and, and progressing in the right direction? Or, or do we try and hope that the world's going to find its own way?
0: You know, it's interesting because uh, evolution is much clearer in retrospect. And one of the things, like my, my classical education, what I, what I worked on in my thesis study was social networking, like the science of social networking, and networks are very effective ways to pass information. Um, so really kind of building on that idea of how best to organize networks and what the most efficient ways of organizing networks and how to leverage the power of hubs and how to like really engineer that. I mean, that would be amazing, but I'm pretty sure there aren't very many urban planners that are looking at it from that perspective you know and that's maybe one of the failures of the way that we look at economics right now because it, things go to the highest bidder and then that's just it like no one's really at least to my knowledge and I know Vancouver's trying really hard to be a green city and to consider social issues etc but I, I I would be surprised to see very many cities in the world that are that are thinking in this way that are like how should we best organize the people in the city to make a you know we think about organizing public space we think about offering green space but we don't really I mean, I, I would love to see a future that includes the idea of socially organizing people. I know that sounds really scary and like the Fourth Reich or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's, that's socially dangerous. Organizing Very people. dangerous. Yes. But in fact, I'd, I, having a consciousness of how people interact with spaces and how you could be more like Paris, be more neighborhood centric, be more um, aware of how the pieces of your city interact, so that we're not so separated and not so separated by it by caste and class right now as we are, we're, we're socially separated I don't know if you've seen this um, there's an alternative map of the lower mainland that's, uh, that's decently offensive, it's got a lot of stereotypes on it but yes. it, there's a lot of the stereotypes that are fairly accurate you know, our, our studio space is in a quote unquote neighborhood in transition we're the north end of the downtown east side um, we have the fortune to be called Railtown, which is a historical name because we're next to the railway but people definitely don't want to work at a co-working studio on the downtown east side. We've got constructs in our minds and ideas of what that looks like and lots of people wouldn't even roll down the street to the downtown east side. But they will come to see Railtown. So a lot of it, I think, is about explaining to people what a neighborhood could be. This is becoming a kind of an arts and culture district and has been for a few years now, but helping people to understand where else they could organize themselves.
1: Thinking about what, what you were just saying, but we're also seeing disruption. So for example, downtown Eastside, Vancouver is the poorest neighborhood in Canada. Like there's no argument there, right? It's a very tough neighborhood. There's a lot of people on the poverty line. Um, There's a big heart and soul there though. And and it's amazing. We're just on the outskirts where we're sat right now in Railtown. But right bang smack in the middle of the downtown Eastside, there's an old police station that's being occupied to house social enterprise startups and to be somewhat of a co-working space as well. So we are seeing that maybe co-working is a movement that helps regenerate areas and bring new people in to diversify. I mean, what do you what do you say about that?
0: Um, co-working is absolutely that movement. So the downtown east side is actually a perfect example of why it's a terrible idea to put all of the same kind of people together. So the idea originally of the downtown east side and, and it's uh, it's unique in all the world, in my understanding, of uh, an approach to creating and, and providing services for people struggling with addiction. And the thing about the downtown east side is that was that was the very benevolent and very wonderful idea. And the same thing as you know, evolution is much clearer in retrospect. When you put all of the people struggling from mental health and addiction issues in an area, and you give them access to service, you give them access to services to to hopefully create an opportunity for recovery, you essentially create an environment that's almost impossible to get out of. Because everyone there is struggling with the same things that you're struggling with, and that's very definitely what happened down here. So that is that is a caveat and a warning, to not do that. Don't, as, as much as I think that we should be more aware of social networks when we're structuring our urban planning the absolute last thing we want to do as you're saying as well is put all of the bakers in one neighborhood that, that that makes very little sense so um that homogeny cultural homogeny is is not the right way to go so as far as co-working as an opportunity to um kind of develop community yes i think that's very much the truth i i actually work with a bunch of the other co-working spaces in Vancouver. Um, We started a BC co-working collective, and we are talking about sharing resources and working together. We have very different flavors, and I think those different flavors... um, I I just actually met with the um, manager of the network hub. She's awesome, and we were talking about how each one of the spaces in a lot of ways reflects our personalities as people, and it it really, like, anytime someone visits our studio and I'm not here, I'm like, oh, they're never going to obviously they, they'll get my personality anyways because it's a manifestation of of where you want to work really mm. like for for people who are really invested and committed to co-working as are all of the first round of early adopters for something i would hazard to say so there's only there were only maybe 6 or 7 maybe a little more actual co-working spaces in Vancouver when i started my co-working space a, a year ago yes. in my in my opinion so but we've had a lot of a discussion on how you define a co-working space because there's lots of shared office spaces, there's lots of places that are incubators and co-working spaces, uh, accelerators and co-working spaces, business development information centers and co-working spaces. In my personal opinion, you know that you own a co-working space if someone asks you what you do for a living and you say, I run a co-working space. and. A business accelerator and it it needs to be your focus that community development part needs to be your focus and it is really not something that anyone can do off the side of their desk it's it's a really like a commitment to developing that community and in a lot of ways the real estate that you're attracted to will dictate the type of space that you create as well so um, the network hub for example is in the business district and it's mostly techs and and programmers which makes a lot of sense. You know, the Sweet Genius, their first location was in Kitsilano, but their second location is in Mount Pleasant, and they attract PR companies, uh, social networking people, graphic designers, you know, that's, that makes a lot of sense. Their, their demographic is represented in, in their area. And uh, actually, what a great example of, of agility in co-working and really being a representative of your community is actually Beta Collective in Surrey, um, the guy that manages Beta Collective had this idea of open area workspace, and he had a real concept of of who he was trying to reach out to. And a year into that, he reflected on the fact that that was not actually the community that he was attracting. And so he's gone to a much more private offices connected by open area workspace model, which I, I think is uh, was really innovative of him. You know, to, to let go of, of this idea of community that he had and start representing the community that was there, which mm. is is brilliant. And that's a real um, that's a real potential for co-working. And that's also why I think that co-working makes a lot of sense to be the next frontier of labor activism.
1: And that's where, you know, we work is like a global movement now. I've actually visited a number of WeWorks in, in everywhere from London, New York, San Francisco. I think there's gonna be one up in Canada very soon or it's just opening in Montreal, if I'm I'm correct. But they're based on the idea of these little offices and these little hallways. People can still drop in and say hi in these community spaces that are pretty amazing as well. Now, what's, what I find interesting about WeWork is that they're trying to diversify into having living space as well, which is cool. But WeWork has been valued by VCs like it's a software company. So it's this idea of potential, the potential of subscription and people coming on board as customers that build community. That community's got an inherent value. And now it's something like $4 billion valuation. And they don't even own the property that they they operate in. I right? actually
0: think it was 6.5. Was it 6.5 $6. yeah. billion? Yeah. So the interesting thing about this to me is that I actually think you can't franchise culture. Like it's it's to me it's uh, it's the milk toast version. So the one thing that's kind of interesting about WeWork and that is potentially strong in in their model is that they still have owner operators that are allowed to make it look a certain way. So it's it's not quite the McDonaldization of co-working so right. there are a couple of uh, companies doing really well uh internationally with a mcdonaldization version so that that comfort of knowing that if you walk into a i can't think of the name of it
1: right now a regis it,
0: no regis don't i regis is a dirty word in co-work that's certainly not co-working that is office leasing sure. it's not even sharing but they're but,
1: trying to come <laughs> across as co-working they sure
0: are and they sure aren't yeah but, sure uh <laughs> Sorry, I don't. We don't have enough time in the rest sure. left in the day for me to talk about the failures of regions. Let, let's but, move on. <laughs> um, there are there are companies that uh, in in that are internationally franchising where if you walk into any one of their locations, it looks and feels exactly like the one that you went to in Barcelona, the one that you went to in France, the one that you went to in Perth. That doesn't appeal to people who are building their own understanding of who they are culturally. It appeals to the original idea that I was talking about where you you walk in and you consume culture and that culture is who you are because you paid for it. It doesn't appeal so much to people who want to be a part of the process of evolving things. And I mean there's a place for it that just like there's a place for people who want to work nine to five. There's a place for people who want to only work weekends. There's a place for that and everything but but it's difficult for me to believe that we work will push culture forward their individual locations will push culture forward and that's that's the other thing so if you think of each co-working space as your union local you have the opportunity to be represented as the group of people inside of the structure cuz you know if, if there was a union of auto workers that had one central person that decided what was good for all of the union auto workers in the world, that wouldn't work either. It's, it's a granular representation, much like politics, You know, much like why we have redrawn some of our federal boundaries so that your representation more reflects the community that you belong in and not just your one number vote. Like, I am one person, I make one vote. The, the idea that you can be more represented by the people you interact with on a daily basis, that that makes sense. So in a co-working sense, if you're... of a co-working space uh, that's predominantly creative production the likeliness is a majority of people will have similar concerns similar issues they will need similar protection for their equipment for their employees they will have similar problems and concerns so they will be more likely to be able to band together and get representation and get representation and get solutions to their problems working together as a group one of the things i really didn't want to focus on was startups So for me, startups have something in common for a very limited period of time. You are in the startup phase of your business. So you should be around other startups who are solving the same problems as you. But that inherently outgrows your space because you are only in the startup phase for a, a defined period of time or a finite period of time. Whereas if you're a video producer and you've been doing it for five years you have something more in common with other video producers. Like a startup video producer and a startup bagel baker, all they have in common is starting up. And once that's over, perhaps they don't have a whole lot left in common to make it a sticky community and an evolving community.
1: Yeah, I I actually dislike the word startup. I think it's an excuse for maintaining a stage of your business for too long. You know, too many (laughs) ping pong tables. If you remove startup and just say that people are building businesses it gets a little bit more serious about like sharing knowledge about building a business versus going to coffee and drinks left right and center to try and uh, whip up the startup culture what I also dislike is you know those hubs that are built to make money from the startup culture because yeah. you know it, you know 75% of cost of, of of a lot of startups is the cost of of rental of space right so there's a lot of incubators and places, I'm not naming names because they do a lot of good, but I think that there's a very strange business of people that make money from helping startups, but not really helping the startup getting out of the startup phase because they'll stop making money from working with that startup as well, right? It sort of leads us to like thinking about these environments that if we take that away and we don't focus on the startup culture and it's, it's more diverse, you can learn something and this comes from like everything from like design thinking to I've got a problem with my business, oh wow I never saw it from your perspective and now I do and that's added this to, to the way that I'm going to solve that problem with this solution and I think that's incredibly valuable as well so it's good to, good to hear that. So thinking about co-working spaces is not being startup co-working spaces but thinking about diversity is going to be important too.
0: Absolutely and you know the future of my business to return to what is the future of co-working so the future of my business I hope and what I'm working towards is the idea of keeping your money inside of your community So the idea that you can hire the person sitting beside you to work on a project or that people come to you to hire from Inside of your stable of people for several reasons one because this is a model that we know works for finances for economics for pushing People forward the idea of choosing a criterion of social belonging whether it's ethnic or whether it's geographical or whether it's because of your mother's it doesn't doesn't really matter what the criterion you choose that group of people on you know masons religious it could be anything but that formula of choosing a reason to keep like choosing another qualifier for selecting who to give money with in projects that's as ancient as all time so if you're building a really good strong community of people with complementary but not overlapping skills you have a lot of opportunity to keep work in your community, keep money in your community and push each other forward and that to me is is really interesting. Um you also have a social accountability element. So if you're going to hire the guy who's working at a desk across from you, he's probably not going to disappear in you know the 3 days before your project launches because he does, didn't do his work. There's a there's a social pressure that's a real part of that to deliver and to keep your reputation. So that that's a really important element of it, of it as well is that if we hire each other and if we learn to work independently beside each other and together when we have the opportunity, then then there's a, a huge advantage to being a part of a co-working space.
1: Awesome! I think we could talk about this for a long, long time, Denise. I'd like to thank you for your time. This has been fascinating. Everything from the the history of work and why we're hitting a nine to five to the modern pressures of of building a co-working community and, you know, what that means in the modern world and it's difficult to balance how it's gonna work but I think we've got some food for thought here and uh, I think we should talk again in the future seeing where it is and uh, good luck with uh, creative co-workers I work at creative Coworkers. I love it it feeds feeds into my creativity so that's why I've chosen it over pretty much every other startup hub or every other uh, co-working space that I've been to in Vancouver because they just weren't me And this is kind of a little bit more like me, I guess. So thank you very much, Denise.